Chapter 3 This part of my story must bring us to Alamein. Not everyone knows that there were two battles of Alamein. The first, we lost. The second, we won. I was in both of them. The first battle of Alamein was fought under the command of General Ostinlech. It was intended to break through the German front and force the enemy back. You might think that as I was there I should be able to tell you what happened, but in fact I simply don't know. When you're in a battle you only know what's happening in your immediate field of vision and what's reported to you. This is how it happened. I was in command of a troop of sappers detached from the rest of the company. We were given no specific task to perform and were told to wait in a certain area until given further orders. Early in the night we could hear all the noise of gunfire, and so we knew that an attack had started. Still no orders came to do anything. We waited several hours, and then a column of vehicles, tanks and Bren carriers started moving past our position in the direction away from the front. This went on for several more hours, until eventually there were no more vehicles passing, and there was almost complete silence. The British Army never retreats. It withdraws to prepared positions. So it seemed sensible to me to follow everyone else. The dust thrown up by this column of vehicles made visibility limited to a few yards, so we just followed the vehicle in front crawling along at a snail's pace, with frequent stops and starts. This went on until daylight, when presumably we'd reached prepared positions, and the withdrawal was halted. Fortunately, the enemy didn't follow us. Perhaps he had problems of his own. When I tried to find out what had happened, I got the impression of complete confusion, what is vulgarly referred to as a bugger's muddle. Shortly after this, Monty took over command of the 8th Army, and things started to change very rapidly. To explain the general situation, what had been happening in the desert for the last two years was a sort of yo-yo action, back and forth. First we beat the Italian army back as far as Benghazi, that's about 600 miles west of Al Alamein. Then the German Africa Corps arrived and drove us back. This retreat was so fast we used to refer to it as the Benghazi Handicap. Then the Germans somehow lost the initiative and we drove them back again, but not for long, because under Rommel the Germans came back in force and we withdrew to prepared positions behind the Alamein line. The Alamein line was a defensive barrier of minefields, and it had been the job of my unit, 295 Field Squadron RE, to lay a very large share of this. I've already mentioned that things changed when Montgomery arrived, and I'll try to explain what happened. The 8th Army had begun to get the impression that the only general who knew his arse from his elbow was Rommel, and I'm not sure that we were wrong. Until Monty arrived, generals were something that one knew about but never actually saw. Monty changed this with a terrific PR exercise. He personally visited every unit in the 8th Army and gave us one of his pep talks. These talks were always full of references to cricket. We were told that we were going to hit the enemy for six. Somehow he sounded convincing and the morale improved enormously. Monty's first move was the Battle of Alam Halfa, which I've already written about. This was completely successful in that it lured the bulk of the German Africa Corps to the south, where it hoped to break through to Cairo and Alexandria, while Monty was prepared for a major attack in the north, his Great Battle of El Alamein. The preparation of the battle was like the preparation of a great stage event. We actually held two dress rehearsals in which we went through all the actions that we'd have to do on the night. For the first time since I'd joined the army, I knew exactly what I had to do, and exactly how to do it. 
It was a very refreshing feeling. With a troop of sappers, my job was to clear a gap through two minefields, to allow the tanks through to attack and drive back the enemy, and then to follow through and drive him out of Africa. The day of the 23rd of October was spent waiting for the start of the action, which was to be at 20 to 10. I explained to my troop exactly what we had to do and the enormous importance of our success. I remember thinking of Henry V's speech to his troop before Harfleur, and then it occurred to me that it was a load of codswallop. You simply don't talk to soldiers on the eve of a battle about stiffening the sinews and imitating the action of the tiger. You tell them exactly what the odds are and what the plan is, and above all, the importance of their particular part in that plan. I don't suppose it was a great speech, and it certainly wouldn't have sounded half as good as Shakespeare's does on the stage. But we were not on the stage, and most of us knew that we would probably be dead before the play was over. One other thing. We were issued with a rum ration before the action, and, believe it or not, I didn't issue the rum to my troop. I told my men that I wasn't taking a lot of drunks into a minefield, and that we'd drink it after the job was done. At exactly 21.40 hours, on the 23rd of October 1942, the biggest bang of artillery the world had ever heard shook the earth. The battle had started, and 1,000 guns all fired together. We were one mile from the enemy front line. One mile of open desert across which we marched. We marched with the Highland Division, and we were right in the front, next to the Piper. The night sky was lit up by coloured tracer shells, and it really was a fantastic sight, which I can never forget. The Piper kept playing right up to the German minefield, which we reached at exactly ten o'clock. A word now about how we were dressed and equipped for the big night. We were in light summer uniform. I wore trousers instead of shorts, because shorts are very uncomfortable for crawling in. Over this I wore a leather jerkin. The nights were quite cold in October. I wore it inside out because the leather would shine in the moonlight, and being a shy sort of person, I didn't want to draw attention to myself. For weapons, I had a Thompson submachine gun, the famous Tommy gun of the old gangster movies. I also had a thirty-eight revolver and a bayonet. Not for fighting, but for prodding the ground for mines. I also had a pair of pliers, a few one-and-a-half-inch nails, and a small coin. The nails were used to make safe anti-personnel mines, and the small coin fitted into a slot on the German Teller anti-tank mine to make it safe. The Teller mine also had two ingenious booby-trap devices underneath, which he had to remove by hand before lifting them. My job was first to cut the wire, then to go through the minefield, followed by my sergeant, who had to lay out a white tape to mark the way that I'd cleared. To cut the wire, which was about five strands, if I remember, I had to lie on my back and cut it from underneath. This was fairly easy, and I started to crawl forward, searching the ground with a bayonet to find the mines. I wasn't worried about anti-tank mines, because my weight wasn't enough to set them off. No comments, please but I had to look out for anti-personnel mines, which were real killers. I soon came to my first anti-personnel mine. This was an Italian mine fastened to a post with a tripwire, which I cut with a pair of pliers. I then needed to place a one-and-a-half-inch nail in a hole at the top of the mine. There was no hole, 
This was worrying, but the next step was to pull out the detonator, and the bloody detonator wouldn't come out. My hands were sweating by this time, and I nearly panicked. I took a few big breaths and began to think. Then I realised what had happened. The Italian sapper who had laid the mine hadn't set it properly. It wasn't fused or primed. It was quite harmless. After that, I came across several Italian mines that hadn't been properly set up. Looking back on it, I'll never know whether the Italian sappers hadn't been properly trained or whether they were afraid of the mines, which were very dodgy, or even whether the Italians hadn't got their hearts into fighting alongside the Germans. After the slight setback of this Italian mine, things got easier, until I came right up to the enemy wire at the other side of the minefield. This was a very formidable obstacle, about ten feet high and ten feet wide, made of concertina wire, and I could see the quite deadly German S-mines that were fastened inside it as booby traps. I fastened a battery torch with a white light on this wire, facing, of course, away from the enemy. This was to show my men that I had reached the end of the minefield, and I and my sergeant then started back, following our white tape. While all this was happening, a battle was raging all around us. The men of the Highland regiments were fighting their way forward, and the enemy was firing back with everything he had. Enemy tracer bullets were flying all around us, and... These, of course, were only the ones we could see. At this moment there was a loud bang, and I was struck very hard on the back of the leg. I remember slapping my hand down very hard and being relieved to find that my leg was still there. I told my sergeant I'd been hit and couldn't walk. He was a splendid man called Sergeant Ball who had the whitest teeth I'd ever seen. I remember those teeth grinning at me and telling me quite calmly that he'd been hit too and couldn't help. For some reason, we both laughed and said, well, now we can go to hospital and be looked after by some lovely nurses. Sergeant Paul and I were carried back by some of our men to the beginning of the minefield. We applied first aid dressings to our wounds to stop them bleeding. Sergeant Paul was in a worse state than I was, and I arranged for a stretcher party to carry him back. The next thing I had to do was send forward a Bangalore torpedo. This was a, a very simple device consisting of a metal pipe full of explosive which was to be pushed under the wire at the far end of the minefield and detonated. It was completely effective and made a wide gap in the wire. I believe this was the only time a Bangalore torpedo had been used since 1918. After this I sent in the minesweeping party, which consisted of three men with mine detectors, followed by three men carrying little cardboard hats. These hats were placed wherever the mines were found. Three more men followed, whose job was to lift the mines and place them on the side of the cleared track. As the track was cleared, a white tape was laid to show the edge of the cleared space. If any man was killed or wounded, his place was taken by the man behind him so that the clearing process didn't stop. At this stage, a doctor arrived, put a more effective bandage on my wound and said he would carry me back on his jeep. I simply couldn't agree to this because there was no one else I could leave to run the show. A few days before the battle I'd been given a second sergeant, but he hadn't been present for all the training and didn't know the mine-clearing drill. He was also, as I could see, in a state of almost paralysing shock and quite useless. I sent him back to look after the stores or, or something that he'd be able to do. I was lucky to have a really first-class corporal, 
who from then on took on the burden of doing my sergeant's job and some of mine as well. I recommended him for the military medal which I believe he received. I'm afraid I've forgotten his name. To continue, as the clearing proceeded we stuck iron posts on either side of the cleared gap. These posts had an iron plate like a T on top which was painted red and white and we fixed a green light on the white side and a red light on the red side. This made a very pretty sight when it was finished, a track about 30 feet wide with red and green lights on each side. We were expecting to have to clear a gap between two minefields, then when these were clear we were to send back the code Mary Jane. However, we found a third minefield, so I sent back the code Mary Jane has had a baby. When our job was finished, our order was to dig slit trenches for ourselves just before the last minefield and wait there. Waiting was one of the things that occupied most of one's time in the army. Unfortunately, we'd been given a very bad place to wait. The enemy knew exactly where his minefields were, and by this time must have known where the gaps were, so very sensibly he aimed an artillery barrage on the last gap and continued shelling for the rest of the night and most of the morning. Unfortunately, that was where we were lying. The light Valentine tanks of the armoured brigade passed through our gaps before daylight, and then when it was full day, I can't remember the time, the Sherman tanks passed through. This was the first time we'd seen Sherman tanks. They'd been sent from America just in time for El Alamein. I should mention that the first American tank, the Grant tank, was a total failure. It had a gun on a turret that couldn't be pivoted, so that you had to point the whole tank at the target. Worse still, it had a petrol engine. The poor men who had to go to war in a Grant tank called them mobile crematoriums. Sometime during the day, I had an order from the commander of the armoured brigade to go and blow up a tank which was stuck in a minefield about 200 yards in front of their forward position. It was thought that a German sniper was in the tank. I didn't believe for one moment that there was a sniper or anyone else in the tank, but obeying stupid orders was something one became used to. And in any case, it looked a fairly simple job. By this stage of the battle, my armoured car had caught up with us, and I always carried a fairly comprehensive supply of explosives in it. Although the tank was evidently in a minefield, it was possible to see mines fairly easily in daylight. The wind would blow the sand covering the mines into a telltale little mound or even expose the mine completely. My plan was to drive up to the tank, drop a large charge of explosive through the open hatch and then drive back. Unfortunately, I had not been as clever as I thought and we hit a mine. The armoured car jumped up like a bucking horse and then settled down with a thump. The engine stopped and we were on fire. I had a driver and my batman with me and I told them to run for it before we blew up. My batman, by the way, was a, an interesting fellow, a poacher by trade and the only man I ever met who called a partridge a Pedrix. For some reason, he never wore socks under his boots and, although almost illiterate, he had an uncanny sense of direction and was an inveterate scrounger. I watched these two men run like hell in a zigzag way because some unkind German or Italian was shooting at them with a machine gun. I think they broke the Olympic record for 200 metres. At this point, my own situation didn't look too promising. The armoured car was starting to burn quite nicely and it was a toss-up whether the fire reached the petrol or my explosives and detonators first. I certainly couldn't run and 
Didn't fancy crawling with a machine gunner using me for target practice. I was also very, very tired, and had reached the point where I didn't care very much one way or another. I can remember thinking of June receiving a telegram saying I'd been killed. I just couldn't bear the thought. At this point, someone in the armoured brigade had the kind thought of firing off smoke grenades, so that I would have a sporting chance of getting away. My memory's not good on this point, but I have the impression it was the colonel himself. Shortly after this, my own CO picked me up in his jeep and said he was taking me back. I said I wouldn't go until my men were also withdrawn, and he agreed to this at once. Of the 75 men I had taken into the battle, only 11 were left, who were not either killed or wounded. My CO was Major Baker, a man whom I liked and respected very much. He was killed in action before they reached Tunis, and his second-in-command, Tug Wilson, became CO in his place. Poor Tug was also killed shortly after. Tug had asked for me to become his second-in-command, but, perhaps fortunately, I was not then fit enough for the job. Just a passing thought. The army had a habit of giving nicknames to go with certain surnames. Some of these were fairly obvious, like Dusty Miller or Chalky White. But why always Nobby Clark or Tug Wilson? I never found the answer to this curious and universal habit. <laughs>